Thanks for listening to Gamblers. If you like this show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative offerings, like Icons Club, a history of the NBA told through the voices of its most legendary players, or Gene and Roger, a look back on two of the most famous film critics ever and how their influence stretches to modern media. Or check out 22 Goals, a series touring nearly a century of World Cup history through the lens of 22 of the most iconic goals ever scored. Thanks for listening. Now let's go make some wagers. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. Stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Uh, <laughs> For the sacrifice is queen, is that what you're telling me? I'm at a Starbucks in the old town section of Chicago on a rainy Friday night. And I'm playing chess for money. Now see, he has he has play where he can try to nullify the plot. I'm trying to take that away. Come on, Tom, take a little break. Oh, I'm going to. <laughs> the man I'm playing is a large and gregarious 65-year-old, wearing a heavy coat, a Chicago Bears beanie, and a surgical mask. What's gonna happen to me? Don't know yet. What's gonna happen to me? I don't know yet, sir. (laughs) There's a methodology to the whole deal. We're playing for $10, but we aren't playing straight up. I mean, I'm no potzer. I know my way around a chessboard. But the man I'm playing is no simple woodpusher. Hell, he's famous. He's been on magazine covers and featured in television commercials. And all the other players who have gathered at this all-night Starbucks to play chess on this rainy Friday night have taken a break from their own money games to sweat ours. Because in order to make this game a tad bit more fair, since this guy's light years better than me at chess, He not only has to checkmate me, at some point in the game, he has to sacrifice his queen. For those of you who don't know chess, the queen is the most powerful piece on the board. It's as valuable as three of the other pieces combined. And in this game, he can't just trade his queen for my queen. He's got to let me get her basically free and for nothing. Giving up your queen is a huge handicap. 
and one that I, foolishly, thought might even the score between me and my opponent. There it is. There she is. There she is. God damn it. There had to be a little consideration. Nicely done, son. Nicely done. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever. Is that it? Mop. But even I, your humble host and chronicler of all manner of gamblers and hustlers, am capable of succumbing to wishful thinking from time to time. Even I, believe it or not, can get hustled. Yeah, good game. And a picturesque one at that. Humiliation, sacrifice, queen. But in this case, I'm not going to be too hard on myself. Because the man who just hustled me out of 10 bucks has been doing this for the last 40 years. He's not just a great chess player. He's made some portion of his livelihood, and at times lived only on money he's won by gambling with people on chess. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. People gamble on chess? And if your idea of chess is that it's a game for geniuses and eggheads who play silently in coffee houses while smoking and reading Russian novels or some shit, well, you're only half right. Plenty of geniuses and eggheads play this game, but they don't all come in the same shape and size. There are really two worlds of chess. The world of professional tournament chess, marked by silent tournament halls and stressed-out nail-biting players. And the world of park chess, marked by loud and boisterous kibitzing across the board, by players who are moving their pieces furiously fast and always with money on the line. And though these two worlds often overlap, they are very, very different. Death becomes you. Death. Death. All right, hold on. You're out of your depth. Death becomes you. All right, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Sheesh. And the guy I just lost this game to, he lives in both of these worlds. He's known in parks and all-night Starbucks and urban areas across America and international tournament playing halls alike. Over the last 40-plus years of playing chess, he's befriended millionaires, dignitaries, political leaders, gang members, drug dealers, and he's been a teacher and a role model for future champions and stars of the game. Wait, 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 wait. Gone that way. We gotta get the picture in. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Immortalize. No, no, you, 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 I haven't learned how to use this stupid thing. This is the story of Tom Murphy, the philosopher king of chess hustlers. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm David Hill, and this is Gamblers. As a kid in Philadelphia, Tom Murphy wasn't just raised religious. He was the pastor's grandkid. He was good at school, good at sports, but when he got to high school, this future chess hustler discovered he wasn't all that great at chess yet. We wound up going to the Nationals in New York City. And I threw away game after game, and my classmates were like, Dad, Tom, you rough on us. Why you let up on them? So I got the nickname, You're a Total Fish. And that became the nickname, the handle, he'd use the rest of his life, Toto Fish. After high school, Tom went to the Air Force, then enrolled in community college eventually becoming a librarian. The library where Tom worked was near Love Park in Center City, Philadelphia, which was a hotspot for chess players. Tom still loved chess, though his official rating from his high school days was pretty low. But he wasn't intimidated. 
downtown Philadelphia across from City Hall. Back then, you could play and smoke and have a great time outdoors. And we usually would draw a crowd. Pretty good size. So me and my loudmouth comments got my rump stirred. And I'm talking crap. Man, you can't play. The player Tom was talking shit to was a history professor named Brian Height. So Professor Height taught me the history of the French Revolution while he took 200 bucks. Always being a good student. I'm like, how in the heck did he do that? Someone who had been watching in the crowd pulled Tom aside and offered him some help. As he hands me my very first chess book, Chess Opening Theory by Alexi Swayton, a very influential book. The player who took Tom aside and handed him that chess book was a master-level player named Norman Pete Rogers. Great FIDE master and tournament player. And this is how I got into gambling. This might be a good place to explain a little about chess to those of you who aren't already familiar. And to help me explain, I asked someone who knows a lot about chess, who also happens to live with me. Hey, Dad. This is my son, Gus. Gus, I wanted to explain to the listeners about chess ratings. Well, chess ratings are like how good you are at chess. The higher number, the better. Right, like my official chess rating is 1,300. That's not true. Yeah, it is. No way. Yeah, at that last tournament I played, I got 1,300. Like two years ago? (laughs) So? Well, you thought I'd be higher? No, lower. (laughs) Lower? I'm not 1,300 and I crush you. Okay, well, we're just going to edit this out. Anyway, Magnus Carlsen, the world champion of chess, has the highest rating ever achieved by a human being, 2882. Chess engines powered by supercomputers play at about 3,500 strength. Gus, where do you get chess ratings from? Well, you get your rating from playing an official rated tournament, which is why my dad's rating is higher than mine. He got lucky in one tournament and beat one person who was really high rated. Well, two actually. And now he isn't playing tournaments anymore, so his rating won't go down. Maybe I shouldn't have asked you to do this. Let's move on. What can you tell us about titles like Master and Grandmaster? You get titles by playing and performing well in tournaments that meet certain requirements. The titles are given out by FIDE, which is like the head of all chess in the whole world. They're the governing body for international chess. When you get a title, you keep it for your entire life, which is a very big deal. But one thing that is important to understand, and this is really central to Tom's story, is that there are a lot of players who play most or all of their games in places you wouldn't expect. Places like city parks, places like prisons, or even elementary schools who can beat grandmasters. There are plenty of chess players around the world who can play a lot better than their rating or their title might suggest. Or in your case, a lot worse. I think I hear your mom calling you. The reason for the disparity is that in order to get those titles, you have to play in official tournaments. And that's expensive. Money's a big thing um, because these take the stuff. I mean, right now I pay $8.50 sometimes for the entry fee. That's national master James Canty, a popular chess streamer on Twitch and my son's chess coach. He's currently working on getting the elusive grandmaster title. And it isn't cheap. He has to travel around the world and pay a lot of money on entry fees. Then you have to do 
the flight, you have to do the hotel as well. You have to eat every day. So this is an easily 2K trip, easily. If he wins, he might get some of that money back in prizes. But even if he does, it's just going to help with expenses. Getting to this level costs money, which might be why so few Americans are able to do it. I remember in 2018 where I was like, I want to make chess. I want to actually be a professional player. And I also want to go make GM. But the only way I'm going to do this is if chess is the only thing that I do. Other countries give their top chess players support the same way we might for Olympic athletes. But in the U.S., players like James are largely on their own. So I had to do uh, lessons. Now, you know, fast forward, everything I do is chess. All my money comes from chess, different avenues. He funds his tournament entries with money he makes coaching and by streaming on Twitch and making content. Something that certainly wasn't available to players until fairly recently. I'm able to support myself, my family, and also travel now and go to tournaments. There are 2,700 GMs that don't, do not, they have careers outside of chess, right? Which is because of, uh, you know, funding and they can't do a profession or they're professional, but it's not enough money even for them, which is kind of crazy to even say. So for most of history, chess players who don't have any other means of support have turned to gambling. Players in the parks, players who are poor and don't have the means to pay out of pocket for coaching and tournament fees. They either gamble to get from tournament to tournament, or they forgo tournaments altogether and instead play for money. And among those players who only play for money, who play to survive, a lot of them are really, really good. While a lot of people climb the ranking ladder in chess playing in tournaments, Tom Murphy climbed a different ladder, playing his way through the parks, cafes, and clubs of Philadelphia. Chess took me through college. It took me through the neighborhood. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite gambling holes was Drexel University, which was not far from where I used to live. And there were a bunch of freshmen there. They were my favorites. They had the Franklin Mercantile Chess Club, where everybody went. And then you had Clark Park on the south side of Philadelphia, where the neighborhood guys go. And before long, gambling on chess took Tom out of Philadelphia and out on the road. Now, from the time I met the professor at Norman, I became the mascot for their traveling chess team, a group called Meet by Force. And they would hustle and gamble in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, Baltimore, and all points south. I was the lowest rated player of the 10 members. A lot of fighting spirit, not a lot of technique. Chess players and chess hustlers are all part of the same fraternity. We went to enough tournaments up and down the East Coast, everybody knew everybody. We go to New York, that's going to be a two, three day jump. And typically we would come back with plenty of cheese. The, the upper guys, anywhere from 20 to 50 or 100 a game. Those little guys, five, 10 bucks. Folks like me, everybody believes they can take the Toto fish. And they've been trying for decades. And every time I go back, I can go to a Harlem Chess Club right now and the proprietor will say, Tom, let me get on the phone. Why do they think that you're uh, easy money? My demeanor. See, that's where being a PK, a preacher's kid, comes in. Being quiet and understated comes natural. And the hustle element, I'm like, man, look, I just got lucky. I don't know what happened. I Got Lucky is Tom's signature. It serves multiple purposes. Well, 
That is part of the Murphy mantra. And they hate to hear me say it. In one sense, I Got Lucky is a sporting admission, a way to allow his opponents a measure of grace and dignity and defeat. As a preacher's kid, one lesson that's been passed on, the power of life and death is in the tongue. How you talk to people has a lot to do with whether you create honey or vinegar. But I Got Lucky is also another type of hustle, a way to let an opponent hold on to a misguided belief that they can still defeat him. Every chess player ever born believes he's a genius until proven otherwise. If the players are anywhere close in their understanding of the game, there's always the, he's a fish, I got this. Or, I got lucky can be interpreted as I chose to when he beat me out of $10, as something said completely insincerely, almost a dig. But that, too, can serve the hustle. After all, if you're going to get your back up about it, might as well prove it over the board and dig back into your pocket. As a longtime Blitz player, I understand that the psychological warfare is much more important than anything else. Three and a half years ago, there was a... Chicago Open, and there I run into one of the Detroit Masters, who's also, he's a master of chess and backgammon. Now, I didn't know at the time he was a chess master, but I took my chess set and my hustle mindset. My grandmother taught me to gift the gab, and after he lost a key match, he was mad. I said, yo, I ain't that good at, at backgammon, but you don't happen to play chess. He smiled, he said, yeah, I play a little. Favorite tagline of a hustler. I said, you know what? You look mighty discouraged after your backgammon loss. You want to take it out on chess? He pointed, welcome to the Matrix. I didn't know he was 2350, but my confidence was high enough and I moved fast enough, he lost. He was not a happy camper. He said, who is this guy? But he said, dude, even in Detroit, we ain't got nobody smooth as you. Gave me a fist bump, kept walking. I like that. Because he understood that he got hustled not by superior skill, but by superior psychology. And that like every other gambling game ever made, is the whole thing in a nutshell. From 1982 to 1989, Tom traveled around with Mate by Force, barnstorming chess tournaments and playing for money in the Skittles room. You could make a lot of money in the Skittles room. And on a good tournament, two grand for me was a nice chunk of change. The Skittles room is the room set up at a chess tournament for players to practice, review games, or generally hang out between rounds. The playing area in a chess tournament is quiet. Players aren't allowed to talk or disturb any of the other players. But the Skittles room is a whole different scene. And although it's never officially recognized as such, what usually goes on in the Skittles room is gambling. I got addicted to that. Listen, that's, not, that's nice part-time money. Skittles room is usually where most of the action goes down, where, like, everyone... That's knows. James Canty again. Some people actually go to tournaments just to stay in the Skittles room. There's uh, people that 
literally only go to the tournaments for the skittles room and they sit in there all day. Some people just clean up shop all day. Hey, you want to play? Yeah, we're playing for five. At five bucks a game, you may wonder how a guy like Tom could make $2,000 in a weekend. While a tournament game of chess might last a few hours, or a game you play with your dad might last for several days, when people gamble on chess, they play blitz. How'd it go in the first game for you? Blitz games are played with a chess clock. Check. That's what it is. I, I, every time you do it, I keep forgetting that that's a check. A clock that manages a certain amount of time for each player, where you hit a button after you make your move, so your clock will stop and the other player's clock will start. In Blitz, a player may have a total of five minutes, or even less, to make all their moves. So Blitzers hanging out in the Skittles room can play dozens of games in an hour. Even at $5 a game, it can add up fast over the course of a weekend. In Blitz, there are two ways to lose the game, get checkmated or flag, meaning letting your time run out before your opponent's. So in addition to allowing gamblers to get more games in over a short period of time, Blitzing also gives gamblers an opportunity to create handicaps. And this is important because unlike most gambling games, chess doesn't have any element of chance. Chance is important to gambling games. Some games like craps or roulette are pretty much all luck. The best gambling games like poker or backgammon have the right mix of skill and chance. Enough skill for the best players to win more often than they lose, but enough luck for bad players to convince themselves they're actually good and keep playing. Chess, however, has no chance. It's what's known as a perfect information game. Both players know everything that the other player knows. And there's no random events like dice rolls or cards dealt from a deck. In chess, the best player should always win. So to gamble on chess, you need to introduce something to create that element of chance or variance. In this case, the chance that your superior opponent will make a mistake. You need to somehow balance the scales. This guy I was playing tonight, he had 15 minutes for the game, I had one. That's David Franklin, a former Solicitor General of Illinois who is a friend of Tom's and a regular around the chess hangouts of Chicago. The night Tom and I hit up the Old Town Starbucks, David was playing another chess degenerate for a few dollars per game, with David taking one minute for all of his moves. Not one minute per move, one minute for his entire game. And the other guy taking 15. I'm a thousand points better than him in rating. So I try to find a handicap that'll make it possible for us to play for money. A 15 to one time disparity would be a huge disadvantage for you or me. But for a player like David, who is nearly master level strength, it was a cakewalk. I won 75% of the game. Right, so if we played even time, I would win 100%. Weird thing is, I'm not a gambler at all. But with chess, with blitz chess, yeah. unless I'm playing for money, it's like not worth it to me. I think it just adds just a little bit of juice to the experience. What's the most you've ever lost on? That's Nick Polson, a professor of econometrics and statistics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He's a scholar in the fields of artificial intelligence and machine learning. But when it comes to chess, Professor Polson is the student. Tom is his chess teacher. What, in terms of games? 
I lost a thousand in that Detroit match uh, a couple years ago. Who? Mr. Brooks. Uh -huh. yeah. That was your personal stake or the full side action? No, I had 700 in there. Play differently when you play for money something? I don't think so. What I'll do is, I have a wide repertoire, so I'll, the first three games tell me whether or not the passive, assertive, or the aggressive method has the better chance. Back in the 1980s, as Tom was hanging out with the Mate by Force chess team in Philadelphia, he pretty much abandoned playing serious tournament chess, what's known as classical chess, in favor of playing blitz games for money. Classical chess, however, is how chess players' official ratings are established, and it's how major titles are decided. To become a master, or an international master, or a grandmaster, you need to play in classical tournaments. To win money in the Skittles room, however, you need to be adept at blitz. And Tom found that he was indeed adept. The Franklin Mercantile had a monthly blitz tournament, which was my forte. It's all open. Everybody had to play everybody. I think around 1985 was the first time I won it. I was rated about 1,600. And I knock off a master, Fide master, two IMs. The word filtered around. Old Toto Fish starting to think he can play. I would play in the World Open faithfully. And in the under 16, and then I, I advanced to the under 18. I went in the tournament. Now I'm ready to gamble. Because I've been watching guys like Roman, who was a famous author. Roman Jinjakashvili was a Soviet-born grandmaster who won the U.S. championship twice in the 1980s. For a while, despite being one of the best chess players in the world, he lived in Washington Square Park in New York City, slept on park benches, and played chess there nearly 24 hours a day gambling 5 or $10 a game to eke out a living. He was a brilliant chess player, but some say he was even more brilliant at the hustle. He's given my coach, Norman Rogers, 5 to 1 on the clock, 5 to 1 on the money, and mate, he has to mate him on the square Norman picks. That was his signature hustle. The way this hustle worked Roman would tell his opponent to pick any of the 64 squares on the chessboard, and in order to win the bet, Roman could only checkmate the king on that particular square. To the opponent, it often sounded like an impossible task. So it helped a player as strong as Roman get money games from players who were otherwise intimidated by him. There's no way that's gonna work. You talk about seeing a absolute wizard. Roman gave him the eyes and wore his hiney out. Tom saw players hustling this way, but he understood that these kinds of flourishes were only necessary for a grandmaster like Roman to get a money game. For Tom, he still needed to focus on getting better at the fundamentals. And Tom was fascinated by those fundamentals, by the strategy of it all. What drew me to chess was not just a hustle. The question of what to do, when to do, and how to do. We call those questions strategy, positional play, and tactics. 
But Tom wasn't ready to seriously commit to chess yet. He was having too good a time. He and his girlfriend Linda used to host regular card parties, games of pinochle at Linda's place for money. Gambling became a way of life. I got it from my aunts. They used to throw card parties. So that gambling gene passed on. The gambling gene stayed with Tom. Linda, however, didn't. Oh, me and Linda, I blew it. Which is pretty much a recurring theme. I was just a lunkhead. Unlucky in love, and then I began to form a love affair with alcohol. As I began to develop my philosophy for chess, I began to likewise become a boisterous drinker. Wrecking cars and all kinds of shit. Getting into bar fights. The more I drank, the more I broke out in handcuffs. In 1988, Tom discovered Alcoholics Anonymous. And the program prescribed a simple lifestyle so he could focus on work and staying clean. That meant no more drinking. But because chess required so much of his time, energy, and spirit, living a simple lifestyle for Tom also meant no more chess. Once you get seduced by the fast life, you go through mental withdrawal the same way a heroin junkie goes through withdrawal. For six months, Tom abstained from his two addictions alcohol and chess. But in 1989, the World Open Chess Tournament in Philadelphia was holding a blitz tournament, arguably one of the greatest blitz tournaments ever held up to that point. As Tom remembers it, there were 50 grandmasters and 100 international masters, a big gathering of top players. And Tom, he entered on a dare. First game I'm paired with Yasser Serwan. Yasser Serwan was not only a grandmaster, he was a 1989 U.S. champion. He was about 27, 25 then. And I'm a hot 1800s. I know I got zero shot. I didn't care. I played him two sporting games where I put up a real good fight and shook my hand. Yeah, you really gave me a scare. I remembered that. Two rounds later, some arrogant joker from Los Angeles, the... Uh, columnist for the uh, Los Angeles Times was uh, I am Anthony Sadie. And he walks up to the board and he said, look, kid, you don't want to go through with this. Why don't you just resign and I'll, I won't make you look bad. Next to me is Ray Robinson, another member of Made by Force. And he looked at me like, please, I don't care what you do, kick his butt. Well, he plays into one of my pet lines in the Sicilian. And he never said that to anyone else again. That was one of my highlights that got noted both in the community. But it meant a lot to me. Because the very next round, I get a, I get a GM. I get Robert Byrne, Robert Fisher's favorite sparring partner. Robert Byrne, another grandmaster, the 1972 U.S. champion, and former candidate for the World Championship of Chess. And he walked up to me like, you beat Anthony Sadie. I said, I got lucky. You're not going to do that with me. I got lucky again. And the fellas never let me forget it. They said, hey, Toto Fish, you done grown teeth. Tom went on to win his section of the tournament. And his prize was a mere $300. But the victory meant more to him than the money he won. That, to me, was my chess graduation. 
because it let me know that hard work pays off and that if I wanted to get where I aspired to, you just, you got to try This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, Restrictions all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear. Especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com. Slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So Tom kicked the bottle, but he succumbed to the chessboard. He was back in the clutches of the 64 squares. He made it to expert level, and eventually someone at the Franklin Chess Club approached him with an opportunity. Would Tom be interested in coaching kids? At the Mercantile, I taught two special people. I taught Greg Shahad and Jennifer Shahad. Little did I know she would become not only a chess queen, but a poker queen too. I'm at Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia, not far from where the old Mercantile Chess Club used to be. The Mercantile is closed now, so today, the chess players meet up here in Rittenhouse to play Blitz. On this day in particular, everyone is excited because another Philadelphia legend has shown up, Jennifer Shahade. Do you mind if we get a picture? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Hi, how's Jen is a two-time U.S. women's chess champion, the author of several books and a global advocate for women and girls in chess. She's one of the more famous and recognizable chess players in the United States. She's also a poker player 
with nearly a half a million dollars in lifetime tournament earnings, and is an ambassador for the poker site PokerStars. Her family is well known in chess circles. Her father, Mike, is a FIDE master, and her brother, Greg, is an international master. But one of their first teachers was Tom Murphy. I believe he was at the Franklin. That would have probably been the first time because there were these blitz tournaments where everybody played everybody, the round robin tournament. And Tom was one of the players. And it was, it, was, it was pretty cool. I believe it was usually double round robin based on how many players there was. And there was different sections. Um, but I remember actually playing Tom when I was pretty low rated. And I did win a game. Jennifer was 11. Greg was 13. And as they continued to lose at five to one, now Jennifer in particular, very feisty personality. She couldn't stand it. And then I would say, well, Jen, can I tell you why you're losing? Yeah, no! Jen, did you read the book I suggested? No! And I did win again. It was a big moment for me because, you know, not only was he a higher, higher rated at the time, but it was also a blitz game, and that was his format. I always really admired his blitz skills, so it was, it was cool for me. And right soon after that, I, I did shoot up, and I became, like, a chess master. So I feel like wins like that against people like Tom and, like, the Skittles room, they were really integral because it showed that I had uh, talent even at the blitz format, which is so important. Would you say you learned anything playing Tom? Oh, definitely. I mean, first of all, I learned that you could be... Um, taking a different path from everyone else and that you could use that to your advantage rather than it being a weakness. Because I was the only woman or the only girl at the time who was like taking this path of becoming a great chess player and like being able to like travel the world and also combining it with my academic career. So I was really forging my own path. Of course, there were other girls in the country who were... You know that if you were more patient, see, there are some fruits of the spirit that translate from religion to chess, patience being key among them. But a, a chess warrior must also be calm in the eye of the storm, especially if there's money on the line. And then perseverance. Can you continue to make the right move for the right reason with the right attitude, irrespective of results? Despite all of Tom's success with teaching kids like Jen and Greg, with developing a new generation of players, with playing blitz tournaments, with gambling on chess. He didn't always take his own advice. He didn't always make the right move for the right reason. I uh, graduated to something a little more risky than alcohol. And that was a tragic mistake. Tom moved to Washington, D.C. because a girlfriend of his inherited a house and invited him to come live with her. She said, you stay here and take care of things, take care of me. You ain't got to go nowhere. One day in D.C., Tom was headed to a funeral, decked out in a suit and tie. And on the way there, he walked past DuPont Circle. DuPont Circle. Lo and behold, it was both a blessing and a curse. And I walked by DuPont Circle, and they're all playing. And they all wanted to bet. I only had one question. I had a hot $50 in my pocket and a hot plan. I took everybody's bet. I walked away with 450, and they were like, damn, how's this dude wearing a clown suit killing us like that? 
After that first day in DuPont Circle, Tom kept coming back, looking for more action. But he found a lot more than that. DuPont Circle had the hottest chess gambling in the city. It also had something else I like a lot, which was not so good. By the early 1990s, the United States was in the throes of the crack epidemic, with urban neighborhoods and the black community being disproportionately impacted. In a few short years, the drug went from being unknown to being available in pretty much every major city in the United States. And Washington, D.C. was no exception. Once you taste it, it has an indelible effect. You get a rush that will never be repeated again. All you get is the chase for the same thing. And see, the adrenaline rush in chess was the only thing that counteracted that other one. So one of the two had to go. While I'm in D.C., I, I meet a guy at DuPont Circle. He says, dude, I can play tournaments. I got a 2,000 rating. I can't begin to do none of the stuff you do. But if you're as good as you look like now, you got to go to the Arlington Chess Club. The Arlington Chess Club was a world away from the chess tables in DuPont Circle. This was a storied chess club, the oldest in the D.C. area, with a decidedly white-collar membership. Lawyers and doctors. A lot of IMs, a couple of GMs. A lot of FMs, and me. First year there, my buddy took me and said, man... That good old boy network don't know nothing about street chess. And I proceed to become the, the blitz champ. I beat up on everybody. And when the, the director, he was fascinated. He says, you're a little on the ragged edge, but I have never seen anybody just walk through 20 people like it's nothing. Your rating says one thing, but when you sit down with the clock, He's like, you're some kind of demon. Tom impressed more than just the director of the club. Other members saw something special in Tom, too. One of them even offered him a job at the Public Interest Research Group, where Tom was asked to canvas door-to-door to raise money for environmental issues. The skill he displayed at the chessboard that made him seem like a good candidate for the job wasn't his ability to checkmate his opponents, but his gift of gab, the way he talked about chess. Because Tom is undeniably a philosopher. With his new job, Tom was doing better than he had in a long time. Everything was going his way. He even started winning tournaments again. His chess rating shot up to about 2,500, on the verge of becoming a master. He was unstoppable. Chess had brought Tom joy, a community of friends, a career, and a sense of purpose. But back down in DuPont Circle, He found out that despite what the director of the Arlington Chess Club may have thought, Tom was no demon. Instead, he came face to face with one. Unfortunately, as the fellowship says, wherever I go, I take me with me. I hit round 2,500, started winning tournaments, and I was right on the cusp of making master when that bad habit showed up. Everything went up in smoke. That particular disease is one of the soul. It erodes all perception, except it. 
family, job, prestige, no, none of that hold a candle. Just look at Richard Pryor, one of the most well-to-do black entertainers ever. It reduced him to trash. Whitney Houston took her out. So, yes, as I said, that disease erodes. And I mean with a capital E. In 1999, Tom was arrested twice on drug charges for marijuana and cocaine and was sentenced to six months in jail. And while inside, he put his chess skills to use. Oh, yeah. Look, the jail system in D.C. is pretty brutal. But like any other male-dominated situation, there's gambling. And so I gambled for food. Next thing I know, there were like 10 chess players and they were feeding me cigarettes and all kinds of contraband. And it kept me alive. And Tom's fellow chess players from the Arlington Chess Club, they looked after him as well. Malcolm X said it best. That if the prison system were to supply them with books and that jails became universities, those who go to jail would not emerge the same. The same seed is still there. I was fortunate in that some of the chess players sent me material in jail. They sure did. A couple of them came to visit, put money in my uh, account. And so when I got out, I said, nah, I got to do better than this. When he got out, he did do better. He went back to attending AA meetings. He went back to work for the Pergs, and he kept studying and playing chess. In 2005, he had a chance encounter with a titanic figure in the chess world, Emery Tate. He says, hey, Murph, heard you having a rough time. Time for a road trip. He puts me in a car, and he drives me directly to Columbus, Ohio. Emery Tate was a former sergeant in the U.S. Air Force, where he won the Armed Service Chess Championship five times. He was one of the strongest black players in the United States, and many believed he would soon become the second black American grandmaster in history. He was already well on his way to reaching international master when he ran into Tom Murphy at the World Open and invited him to Columbus. And I meet uh, a Columbus expert, big-time guy, big-time. And he's like... Tate, this guy can't hang with me. I don't care what you say, he can't hang. $2,000 later, he said, shit, you ain't no Toto fish. I said, yes, I am. I don't know what you're talking about. They got on his last nerve. That cost him another 1000 He was sore, but he's a chess gambler, as well as sports gambling and a few other gambles. So... Five or $10,000 was chicken feed for him. What he was dying for was thorough shit talk, gambling, smoking weed. He's like, come on with it. And he pulled out a pound of some dynamite. The gambler put a large quantity of weed on the table. It was a pound of weed. Yeah. You want to win that, don't you? And I calmly told him, he said, dude, you should not bet that. That's like putting some spinach in front of Popeye's. I told him that straight up. You just put my spinach right in front of me. 
And you expect to win? Well, I walked with an ounce or two. I said, that's all I need. More importantly was the $3,000 that got me into the kickstart. Mm-hmm. A job that took me back in spite of. And a new girlfriend I treated with much respect. That began the turnaround. That win in Columbus gave Tom the money he needed to move to Chicago and get a fresh start with a new girlfriend. When Tom got to Chicago, he saw a city that was divided. People from different areas, which more often than not also meant different social and economic backgrounds, rarely came together for chess or any other reason. So he and a group of other players started their own team, just like his old mate-by-force crew in Philly. They called this new team the Chicago Chess Blitzers. Every major city in this country has its core of chess aficionados. And if the older generation passes that joy for chess onto the young, it's priceless. Once we started the Chicago Chess Blitzers, we all, we built our, our chess club. Every single community and ethnicity joined into a common bond. We began to train together and travel together for a common goal. And when finance got introduced, it was even better. Just like Made by Force, the Chicago Chess Blitzers looked for other cities to challenge. But the East Coast was too far away. So they looked for action in Detroit. Chicago was the first to like go around traveling and playing as a team, which is pretty cool. That's James Canny again. He was one of the Detroit players who played against the Chicago Chess Blitzers. The way Tom remembers it, his games against James and the other Detroiters were no walk in the park. He enjoyed the heck out of it. It wasn't like there was no walk in the park. No, sir. This was all-out warfare. And Tom was right. James did love it. It's healthy competition because it's... uh, we guys are we're, we're preparing to play each other, and also you want to get the games in. It's other styles. And then the, whoever performs the highest on the team gets the lion's share of the money. So when we played Detroit, the top 10 scorers got paid. Said, what kind of money were you guys playing for back then? Oh, shoot, a couple thousand. And it wasn't so much the money, but the Chicago walked into Detroit and kicked their butt and, and left. They didn't want to hear that. I actually only played Tom only uh man. But he was just strong and he was fast and he's he's very positional. And that's what I uh, he's still like that. He's still the same. He's a very strong, he's underrated. Tom and the Chicago Blitzers would challenge players from Atlanta, New York, wherever they could find someone who wanted to prove that their city was the best. And it's important to understand the players that Tom and his team are challenging and playing blitz games for money against. They aren't typically coming from the buttoned-up clubs like the Arlington Chess Club or the storied Marshall Chess Club in New York City, where a certain level of decorum is the norm. They largely come from the park chess scene throughout America, where things are a bit more, well, vivacious. Oh, my God, let me clue you in. So Brooklyn Jerry, for instance, a very talented young man. Don't let him win. He gonna talk about your mama can play chess and she should have never taught you. That kind of stuff. And then you got some, the bottom feeders, they, they get real greasy with it. Lo and behold, it's not just New York. 
That's every city. You can liken chess on the street side more as akin to either barbershop or a neighborhood basketball game. They can be rough mentally, emotionally, and physically. In Chicago, that means you might there might be some bullets flying with your name on it. And so, I began to become the ambassador in Philly, in New York, Atlanta, D.C., and here. And so, even when folks get heated, they'll take a, a word of wisdom, sometimes. Well, we got some that love to argue they don't want to stop. You get that, too, on the street side. But for the most part, if there's a peacemaker needed, that's me. James Canney says that he remembers Tom playing the peacemaker and how he was a welcome presence in tense situations. He's always a person that's um, calm and cool, and you like to talk to him. He's like the uncle at the parties. It's like the, the barbecues, the, the cool uncle. That's exactly how you look at Tom Murphy. Like, no problems. He laughs. He makes jokes here and there. He's going to play some great chess. And it's always a vibe. Mission accomplished. Back at the Starbucks, Tom is playing a stock trader named John Terrell for a few dollars a game. Awesome. And he's winning. Masterpiece. Today in Chicago, Tom has reached a sort of equilibrium in his life. Oh, bogus. Tell me. How much time do you have left? Oh, man. Shoot. I've been robbed. I need a cigarette on that one. Tom is earning money taking on more students like Nick Paulson. Thanks to a renewed interest in chess that coincided with both the start of the pandemic and the release of the Netflix show The Queen's Gambit. And he still looks to mentor younger players including the St. Ethelreda's girls' chess team from Chicago's South Side, who were featured, along with Tom, in a recent National McDonald's ad. A special celebration after their eighth-grade chess team won first place in the state championship. We're showing everybody what we can do now. <laughs> to see the kids grow and watch their game advance, that's just a wonderful thing. And he seems to be keeping the demons at bay. Unless, of course, you consider gambling to be a demon because Tom is still doing plenty of that. Tom has struggled with addiction his entire life. He's seen it destroy members of his family, his community, and at times, himself. But Tom's still here, still kicking at 65 years old. Still, the one thing he can't kick through at all is chess. And after watching Tom and so many others let chess completely consume their lives, I had to wonder, is chess a demon too? Well, I think addiction is part of it, right? Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. There's a less romantic answer, and that's that it's addictive. Well, well, I, well hold on, hold on. Okay. Maybe addictive is not quite it. The spirit of satisfaction. There's nothing wrong with that. No, there's not. And, and so when you apply a, a pursuit like chess, backgammon, or whatever, there are sometimes a monetary success. But more often than not, the matching of wits becomes its own reward. Like he'll sit down and give someone 38 seconds. Now it takes a whole lot of nervous energy 
to not only be physically adept, but mentally adept to accomplish your mission. And regardless of what he's planning for, the satisfaction comes first. Jin Shahade says there are really two ways to look at it. I mean, I think chess can be a way to um, to rid yourself of an addiction, or it could be something that makes you more addicted because you're so upset when you lose. It really could, or you could get so obsessive that you like neglect areas of your life. But uh, I think it could really go both ways. Like for me, when I um, if I'm struggling with an addiction, like playing like blitz chess or something, is like a great way to like just kind of like hammer it out and just like pass some time. Yes. Short answer. Look, endorphins. It's the chemical in the brain that determines your mood, your sense of well-being. Chemicals like heroin and cocaine stimulate the function of endorphins. But there are other ways to access it. The rush of chest, blitz chest, is a feel-good adrenaline high. There ain't a blitz play on the, uh, in America that won't say yes to that. Now, connected with what the, happens with the endorphin is the ego boost. Chess is a one-on-one -on -one sport. No outside influence. It's you and him, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, who's smarter. For the ego, it's a rush as well. Okay. If you consider that in addiction, the ego is, is the core of all addictions. And if there's an emotional feel-good component too, the step from hobby to obsession, super thin. Case in point, how many stories have you heard about chess players going mad? Wilhelm Steinitz, the first ever world champion of chess, died in an asylum. Paul Morphy, perhaps the greatest chess player of his era, had his own family try to have him committed to a mental hospital. And Bobby Fischer, the only American chess player to ever win the world championship, never defended his title after winning it in 1972, living the rest of his life largely as a recluse. Stories like these, however apocryphal, abound in the annals of chess history. But while chess may have driven some of its most brilliant minds to the brink, it seems clear that the game has kept Tom grounded. No matter where he is or what he's going through in his life, he has found community among the chess rabble. And that community has more than once been his saving grace. Tom has a great life. Don't, don't underestimate Tom. He's also very generous to everybody. A very, a very interesting. Uh, I'm not so sure I can say the same about myself. Very everybody. The Southsiders are considered the bottom feeders, economically, sociologically, psychologically. The Northsiders are the upper crust. The suburbians are feel like they're above them, right? So when you see a college professor and a couple of millionaires sitting down, shooting the breeze, and chilling with the Murph, that's very, very cool. 
because it's uncommon. In every city Tom Murphy has lived in, he has held that city down with pride. Because wherever he goes, he builds this kind of community around him. And he's right. It's very, very cool. And it's very uncommon. The chess community is, for the most part, relatively diverse and welcoming. But there's also something to be said for Tom's experience within this world being unique. The love and support he gets from other chess players is paid to him not as a matter of course, but because he earns it through his actions. It may seem strange that a lifelong chess hustler can sit with geniuses, millionaires, politicians, gangsters, take their money, then have those very same people offer him jobs, ask him for lessons, invite him into their lives to be their friend. But in a way, it isn't strange at all. If there's anything that makes a hustler a hustler, it's the ability to live by their wits, mold themselves to fit any situation, be malleable and gain people's trust. It's a skill often applied to convincing people to part with their money. For Tom Murphy, it's more than that. It's simply how he lives his life. It's simply who he is. The hustler is the bad boy of chess. The person who takes his skill and directly applies it as a livelihood. Just like every other pro, poker, backgammon, golf, there is the professional, and then there's the hustler. They're two different people. And how do you, what's the distinction there? What makes a hustler versus what makes a professional? The professional relies on pure knowledge. The hustler relies on craft, outwitting the psychology. The psychological war is more important than the -the over-the-war war. There is joy in pulling off the brilliant swindle. Even here in Chicago, I do my share of time spots and get away with it. It is the joy of the getting away with it that transcends the money. Everybody sees it. Everything's above board. Mm -hmm. There's no hidden trick. Yeah, you made a decision that I can't do the thing that I'm saying I can do, which is beat you with a minute on the clock or beat you with no quit. I said I can do it. You're saying I can't. I did it. Pay me my money. There's nothing dishonorable about that. And there's no argument about the money either. A little hurt pride maybe, but that's it. Yep. But you can only get that bet one time, right? Uh, oh, I don't know. I've got folks that keep coming back after my sweetheart deals. Because they tell themselves, I got lucky. Next week on Gamblers, we're headed to the Lone Star State. It's on your way down to some of those sleepy ranch towns where there's some vineyards and some horses and some barbecue, but not a lot going on, but there's land. So that's where Texas Poker was born, on Old Man Shack Road. Gamblers was written and reported by me, David Hill. The show's executive producers are Juliet Littman and Sean Finnessy. Gamblers was produced by Bobby Wagner, Mike Wargon, Noah Malale, and Vikram Patel. Matt Dollinger was our story editor. Fact-checking by Daniel Comer. Copy editing by Isaac Levy-Rubinette. Sound design by Bobby Wagner. Mixing and mastering by Scott Somerville. The theme song was written by Isaac Lee. Other tracks you hear in this episode are from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. And special thanks to Jade Whaley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.